Welcome to Counter Stories, the show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of this show. Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark's AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and insights that I have are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And we have a very special guest joining us today, Ms. Comfort Dondo. Uh, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Comfort Dondo. I am uh, the founding executive director of a culturally specific uh, nonprofit called Pumalani. Minnesota African Women Against Violence. And our mission is on ending all forms of gender-based violence at the intersection of uh, economic uh, equity and also immigration um, justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I met Comfort um, a while back when she was awarded the Alumni Award at St. Kate's and I was so inspired. And with October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, you know, I, I think that's something that we've talked a little bit on this show about, um, but really having somebody who really does the the boots on the grounds kind of work is is important to, to kind of share. And so I wonder, Comfort, you can walk us through um, why you founded the organization. Uh, first, let me say thank you so much for having me, um, especially in this month. As as you said, it's, it is Domestic um, Violence Awareness Month. Uh, I started this program uh, because I am a survivor. Um, I went through domestic abuse myself as, a, as an African immigrant in Minnesota, and I discovered that there were gaps in how service was being provided. Uh, it was not uh, cognizant of my needs culturally as an African-born woman. And uh, as in my nature, I decided to find a solution. And that was the formation of Pumalani, Minnesota African Women Against Violence, in 2017, February of 2017. And I, I started this program because I did not want any other woman to experience what I experienced in terms of the gaps and the, um, the re-traumatization of myself and my kids as a survivor going through shelter. So Comfort, I'll start by just asking you some uh, background information with respect to the organization so that our listeners have a, an understanding. So the name of the organization is Fumalani, correct? Yes, it is actually, it's pronounced Pu, like, so it's Pumalani, but it's uh, spelled with a P and a P-H. Okay, so the H is, H is silent. The H is silent, correct. Thank you so much for that correction. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And can you... Um, I know I visited your website, so I, I, uh, I have an understanding of what it stands for, plus, but I'd like you to say it in your own words, why you chose that name. And maybe you want to spell it so that people can really have an understanding because it, it is a, uh, a word that is uh, in another language. Uh, so I'll let you go ahead and, and speak to that. Absolutely. So, so, so Pumulani is spelled P like, like Paul, H as in Henry. U-M, like Mary, U-L, like Larry, A-N, Nancy, I. And Pumulani is originally a Zulu word, and Zulu is native to South Africa. Um, I named it after my daughter's middle name, and it was very symbolic for me. Um, according to my culture, we just don't name things. We name uh, things with intent. And so I named this organization after my daughter because I wanted to be intentional about why I was doing the work. I wanted to remind myself of my why, and my daughter is my why. I wanted to end um, gender-based violence across my, 
my generation, from my mother to myself. And then I wanted to make sure my daughter never experienced what my mother and myself went through. And, and this was symbolic for my community. So I wanted to make sure that the girls, the young women in my community don't ever have to experience the level of violence or any violence that my mothers and my generation have had to deal with. What a beautiful, what a beautiful way to, to give tribute to your family and your daughter, of course, and then to your culture as well. And when you think about the barriers that exist for survivors, we can get to that in a little bit. But even before that, just culturally speaking, can you help our audience understand the unique cultural services and approach that you offer through Pumalani that is not offered in other settings here in Minnesota with other domestic violence providers. Absolutely. And I think I also, I forgot to mention that Pumulani means lover of peace. And so again, I named my daughter intentionally because I was seeking peace before the organization. Um, and so that's the meaning of it. Um, I would say, you know, I want to start by saying in Minnesota, we have the, some of the two largest African immigrant groups represented here. So we have the largest Somali community, uh, the second largest Somali community out of Mogadishu uh, in, um, in, in Minnesota. Uh, we also have the second largest um, Liberian community outside of Monrovia, Liberia. So it's very significant. I just want to lay that so people can have a, a visual. And um, despite that, those large numbers, we, we, we don't have... Um, or have never had a culturally specific domestic violence shelter that caters to African immigrant women. Um, one of the largest pieces that I'm missing is um, that the average African woman has four to five children, sometimes not her own, because of the wars where we come from. We've come back, we've come back to the, we've moved to the US, uh, immigrated here with our sister's kid or our neighbor's kid or our uncle's kid. And so we have, we live in a multi, um, a nucleus family where, um, on, like I said, on average, we have at least four to five children in a household. And our domestic violence shelters, they are, they are kind of designed for, for the average middle class, um, I would say, white woman, uh, maybe one or two kids or no kids. And uh, we find the difficulty when women are trying to seek um, shelter and safety, they don't really qualify to be in some of these shelters. Um, or if they have teenage sons, they cannot be in the shelters. And so this was my challenge as I was trying to navigate the shelter systems. The second part is um, we have about 90, 90 um, domestic violence pro, uh, providers in Minnesota. Only, only our program is the only one uh, that caters to African-born women. Then there's an, Asian, there's an Asian women's program. There's a Latina women's program, which is national, Casa de Esperanza. Now uh, I think it's Esperanza. Um, there is a gap. Out of 90, we only have five culturally specific and that's a, that's a really disservice to the uh, BIPOC communities. Why? Because most of the shelters are run by, led by white women, but very uh, disproportionately don't represent the communities most impacted by violence, which is historically marginalized, underserved communities. And so when we bring these conversations to the table, usually um, there's, not a, there's not a power balance there. Right. There's um, only five culturally specific programs that are saying we have these needs. And then we have 80 something um, mainstream programs that are saying we have enough shelter. But who's you know, those shelters are not really serving the communities represented disproportionately. And that's what I'll say to that. So 
Comfort, I got a. I I just want to comment on what you just said about the five specifically um, programs that are in Minnesota, and I'm a little perplexed because one of the one of the uh, jobs that I used to have was Commissioner of Health and Human Services for the Mille Lacs Band, and when I was up there the first time, um, I started a domestic violence program for the reservation. <laughs> But you didn't mention that. So does it no longer exist? I, and I'm just asking because I know it was culturally specific for Native American women. Oh, actually, you know what? Uh, pardon me. I'm glad, Don. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, one of my really close sisters, Nicole Matthews, runs. Uh, so, yes. So, yeah, for the indigenous women, for the for the indigenous uh, sisters, there is um, there are programs that are culturally specific. And I think I think I might have skipped that. And so that that is inclusive in those five. Um, for the so for the for the um, for the indigenous um, sisters that we work with, they um, there's been actually more um, a lot of support I have to say from Governor Waltz and um, our Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, which I'm excited that she's where she's at right now. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, money uh, put in for uh, missing indigenous women, so 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 I'm very glad that this year in the in the last few years we've seen a lot, a lot of support in that. But yeah, thank you for pointing that out. That is definitely uh, one of the culturally specific programs um, um, that I had I had left out. But yeah, that you know that is still very much there. You know, there's um, one one more thing that I want to highlight just contextually, and then we can go further. Is I think most people are unaware that the first ever domestic violence shelter in the country in the U.S. was in fact started in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, yes. in the early 1970s. And most folks don't understand how revolutionary that was, but also the power and control wheel and dynamics that come through with that. And, and we can talk more about it in just a bit. But what I also want folks to understand is the importance of having culturally specific services for the reasons that you stated comfort, but also from an attorney standpoint, uh, more than 20 years ago, I actually uh, ran a law office that focused on providing culturally specific services to immigrants and most specifically Latinas. But but we also I I represent plenty of Nigerian and Somali uh, women in that. And what was critical is to have staff who could identify the cultural aspects and the intersectionality between that and the law and how the law is not written in a way that necessarily incorporates these concepts, but it takes a trained eye like yourself and other you know, BIPOC leaders who can begin to then create that case and create the profile for the attorneys who are helping uh, women escape these uh, violent relationships to be able to be successful. When it comes to immigration, you know, there is that intersectionality with uh, that as well. And having someone who has that background is absolutely critical in order to make sure that the issues of custody are done correctly. Uh, the issues of visitation, of course, and then property distribution and things of that sort. So I wanted to highlight that for folks because that might be a part of this practice that that most folks are perhaps unfamiliar with. I'm, I'm so thankful uh, that you bring that up because um, so I, I'm actually, as I mentioned, I'm a survivor and everything you just touched on has impacted me. Uh, for instance, when I was fleeing 
uh, my abuser, he was financially way more uh, privileged than myself. And I was younger, um, um, new to the system, did not understand the system. And because he did understand the system more than me, I, I walked out of that divorce with um, not anything assigned to me in terms of access to property, although we're married for a while. Um, um, lost um, a huge, um, significant amount of custody of my children, um, which um, has taken me maybe over the last decade to um, to repair. Um, and in my position, you know, as an educated, um, I would like to say enlightened um, immigrant woman, uh, it was it, it was very shocking that. Um, uh, I went through that, and I can imagine for women who have more barriers, like English as a second language, and maybe not not as much of an understanding of the system. Um, I can imagine how many survivors um, go through some of these. And um, I was in a conversation last week with the with the Brooklyn Park, uh, police, uh, chief of police, and we were talking about this and how um, when it, we normally when a, when a, when a, when the abuser is is a is a is a native of Minnesota and understands the law very well. They actually were calling the police disproportionately um, to to go and check on the on the on their victim, and this was a tool they were using uh, to actually use the police force to further bring trauma and abuse to the to the to the victim. So we have all these nuances that many people might not uh, think about. So I'm so glad that you bring all those up because I personally have experienced all of those, and uh, it brings me it brings me to my work with a better and deeper understanding. Uh, and also um, with, a, with a more empathetic um, a lens of actually understanding what is going on whenever I have an intake with a, with a survivor from my community um, that maybe most attorneys or most judges might not understand until I bring it up. And even, even in some cases when I bring it up, they still don't have an understanding. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we continue to have these conversations and maybe hopefully some policy changes around that. Yeah. Um, um, this is this is this is powerful just because of the nuance that's here. We one of the things um, in in working in ministry is 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 coming across situations like this where um, a, a lack of cultural understanding is used to further the gaslighting. That is a big part of the abuse um, that is done, and it's a lot easier to do that when when folks can can make circles around around this. I'll never forget, um, you know, coming uh, being a, a, a uh, uh, witness and being a part of of the the um, proceedings and the judge that was assigned. This was this was with a family member out of state, um, but the judge that was assigned uh, was was Ghanaian, and and when some of the things and the patterns came up, um, it was the look on the abuser's face when when they were trying to move through this was just like all the blood drained from their face. Because the gaslighting that they were attempting to do wasn't going to fly with this judge, <laughs> and so it, it it led to a, a, a outcome that was that that was that was much better. And so I'm glad you bring up that 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 piece around being able to cut through that. What are some of the nuanced pieces that culturally specific services are allowed to to or or, or, or help to to mitigate? Um, as a result of knowing the community, knowing some of the cultural nuances, knowing how some of the things work, what are some of the ways in which that really helps to mitigate some of the attempts of the of abusers to kind of circumvent the system or 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 cause problems? Good question. Thank you so much. You know, um, 
I just think of a recent, um, one of the recent cases that um, actually there's multiple of them, but kind of same storyline where um, the abuser is um, significantly wealthier than, than the, the victim. And uh, he knows the system very well. He is a white male. Uh, the abused is an uh, immigrant woman whose language, French is a, f- a first language. So she doesn't quite understand the language. And in her culture, it's okay to um, to stay in a home where there's uh, multiple, like multiple generations. So there's an auntie there, there's a grandmother there. Um, there's multiple people helping with the children and or picking up of the children at school, from school to and from school, from school because they have multiple shifts they're, they're, they're working. Um, so, they, so the abuser uh, has been using um, that scenario and saying he does not feel safe, that his kids have these, as he calls them, strangers, but they are actually um, the, the woman's uh, immediate family, uh, like a cousin and an aunt. And, and so he's really making a case that the kids are not safe. And as we know, in our culture, we are not individualistic. We're a communal space. It takes a village to raise children. Uh, I also had the same scenario with my ex where I was getting help from my community members. Originally, I'm from Zimbabwe. And so I would have older ladies, elders, uh, help me with babysitting if I had to work shifts, if I had to go finish my master's um, uh, assignments. And he would always say there are these strangers um, that are helping with the children. Uh, Of course, um, we... We are alone most of the time when we're here. And so the judges might not understand that. And I could totally see how that skewed uh, the cases for some of these women where um, actually custody ends up being disproportionately uh, in dad's hands. And then the second item is um, our, our, our historical mistrust of the police systems and how they work with uh, historically marginalized communities. Um, the calling of police constantly to check on the kids' safety the police themselves, they think they, 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 they might feel like they're doing their job. And look, this, they don't realize that they're being used as the lights in the gaslighting. Um, because for some of these women, they're coming from um, war-torn countries where the police were used to torture their departed relatives. So not, not only is, are they bringing the present trauma for the woman, but they are reigniting some things that have happened in the past. So it goes really, really deep. And I really appreciate you are giving me space to talk about these things. And I'm really, really hoping that people listen and understand that it's really, it disproportionately impacts how um, women from marginalized communities end up, um, you know, in the custody, um, as I want to call it, battle, because it is a battle. Yeah, I mean, Um, just having that familiarity is so important. I was recently working with an organization called AWOM, Asian Women United of Minnesota, um, and, and their shelter for API women and just, you know, I met one of the, the survivors, um, and just the way that they had helped her through the, especially the language portion, because she spoke very little English and she, Chinese was her uh, main language and having people on staff who understood the system and was able to help her get to the resources for her and her child, you know, it's. I can't even imagine trying to do that in a different language, you know, Absolutely. and like, you know, it, like in the Hmong community and I think in other patriarchal communities, it's so hard to leave because the men are the ones who hold the jobs. The men are the ones who um, are the landowners. And so I saw this a lot when I was in Southeast Asia where women were like, yeah, he cheats and he has, you know, um, he's never home and he drinks and he hits me. But what other options do I have? 
because a lot of times they can't go back to their parents. It's it's frowned upon, like you were a the returned disgrace. bride. Yeah, right. yes. you're disgraced, mm-hmm. and so you can't go back. And so, what options do they have? Mm-hmm. And you know, and and being in America and thinking like, oh, just leave. Like you know, a lot of us who maybe haven't experienced this sort of trauma don't mm-hmm. see why the women don't just leave. Um, but there's so all these other layers to it that is so hard to understand and. And so, you know, these services are, are crucial to that part. Absolutely. And, you know, I also want to add on to what you said. Um, you just, you just, um, a light bulb just went off for me. Some of the work that we've been trying to do that some of our funders have backed away from funding us and they don't understand why we need to also work with uh, perpetrators um, is because when a woman in our culture I know the Hmong culture is very parallel to the African culture as I'm learning over time. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> we have so much in common that we don't. Yeah. Uh, is that when you marry a man, you marry the whole tribe. Mm-hmm. You marry the whole village. And so even we, even when we move to the U.S., when there's a divorce happening or when, when an African woman says, I don't want to involve the police, maybe I want to involve the elders and the aunties, is because mm-hmm. she understands very well how when she involves the police, she's going to be outcasted of the whole community mm-hmm. or how they don't want to go to a shelter, but they want to stay in the community, but they just want the abuse to stop. Uh, many, many of the mainstream programs are structured in a way that when there's abuse, go to shelter and you have to prove that you've been abused. Did you call the police? The judge will ask. No, I didn't call the police. And they'll say, so there's no case. No, mm-hmm. she didn't call the police because she does not want to bring disgrace to the whole village. And she just wants the abuse to stop. So I've heard women saying, I called 911 and I just wanted the, the, the police officer to mitigate the violence that was happening immediately. But I didn't want child protection to be called. I didn't mm-hmm. want him to go to jail because he's the breadwinner. So it's so nuanced. It's so complex and messy. And, um, and that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of um, what we deal with. And it's, uh, it's systemic and very pervasive. So it's really, it's slow changing. And hopefully, I, I have hope <laughs> that someday, you know, it will start to make sense to those who are not from those communities. Yeah. yeah. Comfort, one of the other things that strikes me that we should really work to unpack here is the emotional abuse. You know, when I was representing clients, often enough, and these were mostly immigrant women, the <laughs> immigrant women would say, I, I haven't been abused. He hasn't hit me. But yet in the same interview, I would find out that the emotional abuse was so terrifying. It would be about reporting her to immigration. It would be about deporting her. There were threats to um, take the children away from her so that she would never see them. It was, there were threats about him escaping with the children to another country and never seeing her children again. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? So can you speak about that, that emotional abuse and how that is as serious and damaging and traumatic as it is the physical violence that also takes place as part of this? Oh, I'm so glad you're um, I'm so glad you're in this space right now, because sometimes I feel I feel like a broken record when I'm sharing some of these stories uh, and also my story. Um, I actually write this in my book. I, I just I got a book published called Facing Giants. And, and one of the giants is the criminal justice system that I address in my book because um, I, I lost my son for seven years. And the only thing that convinced um, 
the judges to give me my son back was um, that he could verbalize the abuse that was going on at dad's and that he didn't feel safe at dad's. But for those seven years, I was deemed an unfit mother because I was homeless. I was homeless, but it didn't mean that I was not a good mother. Um, I had um, I had extend, like extending um, circumstances that didn't enable me to 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 have a home that time. So so um, I, I really agree with what you said. The emotional abuse is the worst kind because uh, at least with physical abuse, there is um, marks. And sometimes those marks heal. And when the police comes and you have a black eye, at least they can record that. Emotional abuse, however, is the worst kind because um, for me, in, 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 in what I believe in, words are very powerful. They create. Uh, when, wor- when words are, are said to you, you cannot unsay them. And, um, and, and that has been the worst kind, even in my own personal story. Um, I say it took me a decade plus years to start believing that I was beautiful because I was told otherwise. For like 12 years, I was told different story. And so, and so the emotional abuse, I wish um, that our judges would have an assessment. Uh, I wish the, the judicial uh, branches would have an assessment that also um, kind of calculates like this is a level of emotional abuse that is mentally not healthy, uh, but unfortunately it is not deemed abuse until there's a mark. And so, and so that also puts a lot of the survivors and victims at a disservice. Uh, and and you, you know that a lot of the abusers understand the system very well. They will not put their hands on a woman, on their victim, but they will say words that really damage. The, the second thing I wanted to t- touch on is also the uh, power and control will in terms of custody, the use of children and um, uh, parental alienation to further abuse a woman, um, to further abuse a victim. That is very common. I've seen that a lot, including in my own story, in my own case. Um, and and, and they, they, the systems just don't speak to each other uh, in a way. Um, I remember my 11-year-old son telling, uh, telling me, Mama, I don't understand how a system um, would allow a father to take me away from you when, I, when I'm younger. I need you. I need you. That's what he said, my son, to me. I need you when I'm, I'm at that age. And then I need my dad when I'm a young man, when I'm a teenager, so he can teach me some things. This was, this was when he was 11, and a child gets that. And I don't understand how a, a whole system does not understand that. Uh, and so, and, and, and unfortunately, this is so much common. And we have a lot of our brown and black babies um, falling within those cracks um, because um, people are just not really listening uh, to, to leaders like myself. Um, and, I, and I wish there was more listening than, um, than reacting uh, because um, it really affects children. I, I think in my case, if I didn't have the resources to fight for my son, um, we're talking about another broken generation, right? He, he would have gone through abuse and he was going to turn out to be not as healthy a young man. He was going to meet another young woman and the cycle continues. And this is why we have vicious cycles of violence in our communities. So, so just to come back to your question, I, I would like to say um, um, you touch on some very, very important uh, points. Emotional abuse is the most common type and the most disregarded type or um, under um, underlooked type, uh, which most uh, abusers use because they know that there's no, there'll be no evidence of that. Okay. Uh, well, you know, you mentioned the, that you, you work with the, the perpetrators as well. And that's just, I don't think that's something a lot of people think about 
first of all, but second of all, just how useful that is to break that cycle, right? I mean, thinking within my community, uh, boys are not usually taught and I don't think it's only in our, my community, right? It's always like, girls, don't wear such revealing clothes. But instead of teaching the boys, you're teaching the, you're shaming the girls type of thing. And I think that's a missing piece that I didn't even really think about until you brought it up, Comfort. Working with the men to sh- to teach them the, the ways that, you know, the, the trauma that they bring about, whether physical or emotional. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, it, it was, um, I'm, I'm not going to, um, to sugarcoat it. It was really difficult for me to, um, to get to that place where I was comfortable um, because I, I am a survivor first before I was an advocate. Um, but then again, our, our work is culturally specific. And for me, cultural specificity uh, means it is very centered on the, on the voices of what the community um, needs are. And um, in the first two years of our work, we did a lot of um, healing, what we call healing circles, and we did a lot of community listening sessions. And what kept coming up was, why do we still have this issue to date? Uh, since the Beijing conference, we're still having this issue. And, and one of the things the elders were saying was, we, we are gathering as women and we're healing each other, but we're not also, we're not healing our boys. We're not, we're not bringing the men to the table and, uh, and tell them um, the harm that they're causing. And, and this is very gendered for me. I also want to acknowledge that there are some men who, who, you know, who, um, who suffer abuse, but disproportionately women are the victims in most cases. So that's why I, I, I'm just um, generalizing in that way. But um, my, our community members started saying, I think we need to bring men to the table. Uh, the same way we used to do uh, back home, where if there's an, a domestic issue, the chief calls the men, family and the woman's family, the woman's aunties and the men's uncles, and they resolve. If the marriage needs to be dissolved, it is done amicably uh, without calling the police or any of that. And so we started saying, we need to go back to our old ways of of, of being, which served us very well and kept the community intact. And so that's where, um, that's what uh, gave birth to some, the work that we call, um, you know, accountability with love. So, so, so we address the root cause of the violence. Um, see if you know if if he needs a support, uh, uh, mental support, emotional support, but also keeping them accountable with love. And what does that look like? Um, it looks like not uh, punishing uh, trauma. <laughs> we realize most of the men who cause who use violence have witnessed violence as children, um, and, and also um, just uh, jailing. Uh, a man uh, just jailing him for causing for causing harm is not going to change his behavior. He'll just get out of the jail and he'll cause more harm. So, so we thought, um, why, why, what is what is a, a restorative approach, right? So, 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 and and, and I think it's um, a lot of the people uh, in this movement. It's kind of a, uh, it's very controversial, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm glad to say that um, organizations or coalitions like Violence Free Minnesota. Uh, I have been on, uh, on board right now. Uh, I'm currently sitting on a on a on a on a collective where we are. We have um, we have prosecutors, we have de- public defenders, uh, and we have advocates. And we are all trying to see how can we weave together a restorative, holistic approach uh, collaboratively that doesn't just punish, but uh, it keeps folks uh, accountable, but with love. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I I, stu- I studied in South Africa for 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 several months, and and we were in Mdumbi Bay, and um, that's why I started to say Salbona Sisi when we started. Uh, but did you? Uh, you're from Zimbabwe, right? Yes, correct. Okay, okay. Um, but um, one of the things that happened while we were there, we were in. Um, we were in the Eastern Cape and and we were sitting and we were having a conversation. All of a sudden, this truck comes barreling in and in the back of the truck is this is this husband who after they had had several conversations and inter and, and, and it, was, it was time for him to meet the chief. It was time for the for the folks to come together. And all of a sudden, everybody started coming around and whatever we were doing paused. And I remember looking up and realized that at this moment, and since we were there and we were being taken in, we actually were brought in. I didn't know what anybody was saying, but it was like, <laughs> you, 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 it's time for you to look at everybody here and, and hold yourself. And, and there's an accountability piece there that I think um, is absolutely essential. I, one of the things that I, I see just in terms of the nuance of the ways in which the emotional abuse happens is particularly for close-knit communities that are collectivist in nature, husband having access, especially in patriarchal ones, having access to spread an, a narrative. It's almost like a, like a marketing and PR campaign. I spread this narrative that's so different than what's actually happening in the abusing, in the abusing situations. And, and all of a sudden, before a woman even gets to her community space, um, her, her husband has spread this, infor- this, this narrative about all these different things about why he is in it, like, 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 and, and so she has to now battle all of that while talking about all the rest. And it's part of that that gaslighting cycle. That's, that's It's not specific to, 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 to just certain cultural spaces, but it's part of the gaslighting that if we if we can understand and, and, and be more conscious of how that's happening. As soon as I hear that, I can start to it can pop on the radar now because of having gone through that experience and having some of those conversations um, in 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 my own congregational space. We're having conversations about what the red flags are for abuse on a bunch of different levels. And this is one of the red flags. When somebody's trying to really push a particular narrative about what's happening at home, there are some important questions that we need to ask that man. And then there are some important questions we need to check in with on, on, on other folks because we, we've, been, we've been taught by some of the specialists who've worked with us, these gaslighting patterns that we can be a part of interrupting so that folks can't hide behind that process. And so I'm really glad that you're, you're unpacking some of these nuanced pieces so that we can figure out how we can be involved in interrupting these cycles before they get to um, to, the, to the deep abuse. Absolutely. I, I love what you said. And, and, and um, just to add on to, to that, in addition to the man having access to the chiefs or the pastor or, mm-hmm. you know, the, and we believe strongly the man is the head of the home mm-hmm. and him having that power that comes with that is also wi- women upholding patriarchy without mm. them even realizing it. So so we see a lot in our in our culture when one of the one of the mm-hmm. items that um I'll ask why a woman is hesitant mm-hmm. to leaving is that mm-hmm. um she, the alienation of herself mm-hmm. from the community and it's not even the men doing that it's fellow women who are doing that. And so it's it's so it's so powerful um the hold of patriarchy because I have seen time and again a lot of fellow women upholding that uh shaming you know, living in, and, and I think, um, I think what, and I think one of my, uh, one of the fellow contributors here mentioned uh, in, in their culture, um, once you leave, you, you become like a second hand, you become less than, uh, and that's really, that's something that I personally 
had to deal with. Um, I can say that since I left my marriage, um, mm-hmm. I, I've never been a part mm-hmm. of my community uh, because um, the women in the community, they don't look at you the same. Yeah, they don't look at you the same. If you're divorcee, single mom, you are you're an outcast and it's very real. And a lot of women would rather deal with the abuse than being outcasted because isolation, right? Confinement, that's like the worst form of punishment. Um, so, so that is very, very common. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> a lot's been said and I guess I was just a um, comfort. You were, everything that you've touched about um, has kind of brought back, brought back memories. Um, Cause I think early back in the nineties, I, uh, I uh, worked for a, a program called the Father's Resource Center, and mm. and but I one uh, my minor was in uh, violence prevention, so I've been, you know, in the '90s I did a lot of work around domestic violence, um, looking at it from the perspective of fathers um, and families. Mm-hmm. Worked on different kind of coalitions that that helped. Uh, here in, in St. Paul, we worked with United Hospital and helped them put protocols in place so that they could recognize um, abuse when women came in for emergency visits. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I know that, and, and I heard you mention that, you know, you've started this program where you work with perpetrators. And I know back in the 90s when we we started offering uh, anger management classes for fathers, for men. Um, but then we found ourselves in a battle with the women's advocates for domestic violence mm-hmm. because they, they accused us of giving the men an out mm-hmm. by offering them men's. And, and, and we were very clear because we had to work closely with the women's advocates to let them know that there's a difference between anger and there's a difference between perpetrating. So we were clear with the advocates back then in the 90s that what we were doing was anger management and we could tell if men had crossed that line. Then we did because they were they were not then appropriate for what we were offering and we Mm -hmm. would refer them to domestic violence um, programs because they, mm-hmm. you know, they do have some that are set up for men. Although I would argue, much like the experience that um, you've talked about in social work, you know, what you described in terms of your uh, your the cultural mores of your community and and how that impacts uh, women in this situation are very similar to the Native American Indigenous communities as well as Asian. Yes. And for those of us who understand those nuances in social work, we refer to those as strengths. And we realize the strengths of our community. It doesn't have to be a blood relative who can step yes. in and take care of that child. But we recognize that where proponents from the dominant culture and dominant culture's mores and values differ where they don't usually involve a lot of extended family or others to step in and help. It's just that nuclear family. But we understand those nuances and those differences. And so those become strengths for us. And I just mention all that because there's so much to unpack. I just needed to talk because listening to this conversation just brings back 
all the work that we did in the 90s to try to help us get to where we're at. And I'm hoping things have improved and that, you know, so that individuals like you who can step in and fill those voids um, aren't having as hard of a time. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, John, I I really and you know, thank you so much. I pay homage to the work that you 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 you, you the foundations you laid um down in the 90s, because I think it definitely has improved. And why I say that when you were sharing, you you, you talked about the pushback. And now I'm actually seeing, I mean, I, I am I'm amazed at how the coalition, um, it was the formerly the coalition on ending violence against women, now it's violence-free Minnesota, that they actually they actually solicited a large part of funding recently to bring culturally specific programs together to and, and to invite um, the criminal justice system to the table and prosecutors' offices to the table and say, we need, we got to figure this out. We need to figure out how to come up with a with a middle ground of what restorative justice looks like, you know. And so and so, I I don't think that I think I know that the work that you did was not in vain because I I can imagine back in the nineties the pushback you must have received and um and not only our culturally specific programs um are doing this work by the way I know there's a there's a few mainstream programs also looking at restorative justice and working uh, with men who have used violence um I, I could name a lot of programs here but um but but yeah I think I think that work you did um was definitely uh, some foundational work and we we just uh, get to benefit from your hard work prior because um yeah I think um I, I think we're moving forward with um um with some hope as well yeah well we think about signals, if you will, that women and, and others should recognize. And I, I should say right now, there there is same-sex violence. So with LGBTQ plus communities, there is also violence in those relationships. So it's not heterosexual only. Uh, and then it, it this cuts across race, it cuts across income level, it cuts across education as well. So want to make sure that that people understand that. But for our listeners who might be wondering, uh, what does this look like? And are they themselves in a relationship where there's power and control that would then constitute this domestic violence? I think we could just do a quick rundown through that. It's through the this power and control wheel that actually was developed for the first time up in Duluth, Minnesota, by one of the domestic violence uh, programs. And I'll list then the different uh, parts of it. The first one being using intimidation, making her afraid by using looks, actions or gestures, smashing property, uh, destroying her property, abusing pets is a really big signal also in terms of someone being violent, using emotional abuse as we have talked about earlier, calling her names, making her feel that she's crazy, uh, and, and humiliating her in front of others, making her feel guilty about the violence, right? That you caused this, and I would not have hit you otherwise if you had not acted in a certain way. Isolating her in comfort, you talked about that, controlling what she does, who she sees and talks to. When, when I handle these cases, the abuser would often take the woman's phone away and not allow her to use a phone, not allow her to talk to her family at all. She couldn't have any conversations with her mom or, or loved ones in her family. Uh, using jealousy to justify his violence is another one. 
minimizing, denying, and blaming, uh, which falls into kind of making light of the abuse, uh, saying, I'm sorry, but then the next day hitting her again, right? And shifting responsibility for the abusive behavior back to her, saying that she caused it. Using children, we talked about that a little bit, making her feel guilty about the children, using the children then uh, to have some form of control over her and threatening to take the children away, and using the children back and forth to relay messages uh, in, say, broken relationships. Uh, using his male privilege, treating her like a servant. Uh, a lot of um, rape happens in these type of relationships where he forces himself upon her and insists that she then engage in sexual relations with him, even even though she doesn't want to. And, and that's a really big sign as well, being the one to define what her role is in that. Uh, another one would be using economic abuse, preventing her from keeping a job. Uh, that often is something where he isolates her and doesn't allow um, her to, to work or have her own money or taking her money as soon as she comes home, right? And stripping her of any type of um, economic independence, giving her an allowance, uh, and, but not letting her know about how much income the family has in a bank account, not putting her name on a bank account. And then the last one being using coercion and threats, making and carrying out threats to do something to hurt her, threatening to leave her, uh, to commit suicide, and using coercion that she will never see her family again, she'll never have access to money, uh, things of that sort. And then lastly, making her do illegal things, uh, things that he knows would make her uh, engage in unlawful activity, whether it is disobeying, disobeying a particular law, you know, with respect to use of alcohol or drugs and things of that sort, and setting her up then for failure in terms of being criminalized for her behavior, something she didn't want to do, but had to do because he was forcing her to do that. So if anybody sees themselves in any of those symptoms, um, then we would highly recommend that you reach out for help uh, for your protection. So that's that's a, a powerful, powerful. Um, and I know, Don, you, you had connection to that, to the development of that, right? Or you 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 were connected to some of the folks who developed that? Well, I, you know, in the 90s, when I was working with the Father's Resource Center, and it was right, actually, it was um, I had the opportunity to meet Michael Paymer, who was part of that group that created the Power Wheel up in Duluth. He actually was House Representative for uh, the Highland Park area back when uh, Keith Ellison and him were on House Committee the first first when I worked for the state. And so, yeah, I had the opportunity to talk to Mike about the development of that Power Wheel, and because um, that, that that also was it was after the time that. I was working in the West 7th community, community area, helping a United Hospital put those protocols in place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, Mike, Mike was able to share some of his insight and thinking that went into when they created that wheel. It was a unique opportunity.
it makes me think about some of the training that goes into um, even becoming a pastor. So, so part of my process and this continual process, right? It doesn't end, but we have to start looking for and being cognizant of the warning signs because we are especially in in faith based institutions that 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 have been used to to deal out some of this some of this patriarchal behavior and abusive behavior. Um, you know, folks validated, folks used, particularly in Christian faith spaces, they used those 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 biblical teachings out of context and out of a, a the, uh, theologically, but still used them uh, to to deliver some of that abuse. And so so being able to see and know those warning signs, and and you know, I'm in I'm in a position to be able to teach about those warning signs and have that be a part of our 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 message about what. What what is there? I can think of, and I'm I'm curious, um, especially um, seeing as how how particularly uh, Christian experiences in in African communities in particular, um, uh, but but also also across other faiths and, and tradition, that's such an essential part of communal space, and how that can be an area in which it's it's again another area to use, and so being able to see the warning signs of 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 Christian abuse or faith based abuse or faith-backed abuse are another parts of cycles that we need to make sure to 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 see and interrupt. And it's by wheels like you just described, Luz, that we can start to see these patterns that we're not aware of. Just like we talk about racialized patterns that many people aren't aware of, we may not be aware of the abuse patterns that are being used in front of us. I I wanna I wanna pull pull out something that you shared in that in that wheel. Um, and that is using um, elements of that we know our society already has um, is already problematic for women in our society, and that is use of beauty cues, use of of, of cues around self esteem, of looks, you know, and and all these things that we know are 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 issues in other spaces are then used by abusers to to try to poke and prod. Um, I'll never forget, never forget. Um, one of the convers- th- things that we, that, in, and I, I had to be about 14 years old, and it was a church community that I was in. And, and, and I was seeing this couple and every single comment was about dress, was about looks, was about all these things. And I, I'll never forget my grandmother stopping and realizing and stopping to ask her, says, every single word out your mouth is about how you look and what you're dressing and stuff like that. And as she began to ask questions to get underneath what was happening there, she uncovered that this wasn't just coming this wasn't just a societal pressure that was being put on her this is being put on her everything was about you know i need to look this for my husband i need to do this for my husband and it went beyond just a, a surface cultural pride thing to something that my grandmother had to dive deep in and 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 her raising that concern and that issue put the lens on for the whole community not the whole community but it, but before a group of women a group of 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 leaders women leaders who started to really pull her close in. And as soon as they did that, what happened? He started coming around and getting real suspicious. And it just started to tick off all of these different pieces of the wheel that you just described. And all it stems from one person noticing a pattern and interrupting and asking a question and pulling that person closer and, and getting more involved in, 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 in around to start seeing things. And when the suspicion started going up for all the folks around, it just unraveled that, that whole kind of dysfunctional universe that, that was going on there. And so the power of being able to notice those patterns is clutch. Um, and I've seen it firsthand. So as, as we wrap up here, um, you know, 
We have had some other really amazing guests um, recently, Asma Mohammed and Sarah Super, who worked on um, extending um, or eliminating the uh, statute of limitations for sexual violent crimes. Um, and so we've heard all these amazing stories from these survivors that became advocates. Um, and, you know, I just want to take the time to thank all of everybody who does that and for coming on the show. Thank you, Comfort, for coming on the show and educating us and sharing your story with us. Um, you know, as we continue um, counter stories, I mean, this, these are the stories we want to bring out, right, that that we don't always hear and, and make us think about issues that we don't always think about when it doesn't directly affect us. So thank you. And in closing, um, I want to share um, one last thing, um, I remember one of the most high profile cases uh, of a woman who had stabbed her husband because she had been abused uh, in isolation for a long time. And I had to testify. And I remember what she kept saying was, I wish I had someone to talk to. I wish I knew a place to go. So I think in, in my interpretation, she wishes she had a culturally specific place she could go to where she could relate. And so um, I guess I'm so thankful uh, to be in this space with champions of world peace as yourselves. I'm so glad um, uh, that we, we have that right now so that no other woman, no other victim has to go through that. And I really appreciate you, um, uh, you know, inviting me to this space to share my story and the story of the many women that I work with. Thank you, Ashe. I'm Holly Lee, owner of The Other Media Group and producer of this show. Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark's African Methodist Episcopal Church in Duluth, Minnesota. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and insights I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Don Eubanks, associate of Dendrill's group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Um, thank you so much. Uh, this is Comfort Dondo uh, Pumulani, Minnesota African Women Against Violence Executive Director. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Mm -hmm.